Fantasy Animation is a completely free, online, educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. It is staffed by a volunteer army of academics and animators who give up their time to run the website so that our audience can be kept informed not just about the latest goings-on in the world of all things that are drawn, imagined and sculpted, but to help inform them about the historical, political, ethical and aesthetic ramifications of what it means to make an animated fantasy. Check out our weekly blog posts containing insights on everything from the sexual identity of Spongebob Squarepants to how to make an animation on a pair of knickers. You can also access our archive of podcasts featuring Oscar-winning VFX supervisors, historians, classicists, animators and folklorists discussing their favourite examples of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, or visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me Chris Holiday, And me Alex Sargent. So for this episode uh, we're taking a trip I think for the first time to the DreamWorks Animation Studio. Uh, often viewed as Disney and Pixar's kind of commercial rival but whose work definitely offers I think something different to the narrative and stylistic formula of these maybe more renowned studios. We're looking at Shrek 2 um, and I think for me... It's a computer animated film, so I've got lots to say. You know, it's it's the sequel to the very successful first Trek from 2001. Um, this sequel does, you know, a range of very odd and slightly strange things in relation to journey narratives, uh, a bit on cinephilia, star voices, uh, and obviously it's marked by DreamWorks' signature pop culture um, citation. I think there's also lots to say about um, what Shrek 2 has um, in kind of conversation with computer animated films in Hollywood. Alex, this one's a bit of a fantasy, right? Surely? It's a, it's a bit of a fantasy. It's a lot of a fantasy, um, but not enough of a fantasy for my, for my liking, mm. which is why I'm going to be the, the resident grump of the podcast this week. I think uh, when we talk about Shrek, uh, this is the one where it jumps the shark, and I will articulate why um, in a few minutes. And I know that's fighting talk, so I know I'm going to have two uh, DreamWork enthusiasts to contend with this week, but I'm happy to do so and stick up for team fantasy like I always do. You've dropped a bombshell within about 30 seconds, but okay. That's what I do. Um, so, uh, yes, on that note, you mentioned we have two DreamWorks enthusiasts. I'm certainly playing second fiddle to our to our guest today. Um, we're thrilled to welcome for this episode Dr. Sam Summers, who's an associate lecturer at Middlesex University, where he teaches uh, animation. He's also the co-editor of a collection on Toy Story and perhaps most relevantly, author of the recent book DreamWorks Animation, Intertextuality and Aesthetics in Shrek and Beyond. He's also the author of a fab chapter on How to Train Your Dragon and a certain fan anim book, shall we say. Um, He's also the co-host, along with journalist Ben Travis, of the Disney University podcast that offers a crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics. Uh, and his work has gained recent prominence through the Shrek films, actually. Uh, he wrote a robust defence of the first Shrek in The Independent, uh, t- titled Shrek at 20, Haters Be Damned, This Grumpy Ogre Changed Cinema. Now that's fighting talk. Um, and he's also the co-organiser of an upcoming Shrek conference, um, which I know he's going to tell us more about towards the end. So Sam, thank you so much for coming on uh, this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honour to be asked to come on and to... Talk about the best Shrek film. <laughs> oh, oh, dearie me. Well, that was my first, you, you preempted my first question. So I've got Shrek versus Shrek 2, the great debate, the greatest debate, if anything. Um, I've heard you talk a lot about the first Shrek in your work and in, in the ways that I've described. Um, but I'm just wondering, you mentioned then it's the, the best Shrek film. So where does Shrek 2 then fit in with, with sort of your work on, on DreamWorks? Is it kind of emblematic of what they do? Is it kind of a place where they're kind of going somewhere different where does it where does it sit for you i think it is in a way very emblematic of what they do or at least emblematic of and perhaps a major contributor to the public perception of what they do because what what i always say about shrek when i'm asked to contextualize the importance of the first shrek movie within the history of animation is that toy story codified how the computer animated feature film would look but shrek in many ways codified how it would behave because so many of the kind of upstart studios or studios which were pivoting from 
hand-drawn animation to computerised animation in the wake of Toy Story and Shrek, chose to emulate Shrek in many more ways than they did Toy Story in terms of the way that they utilise star voice actors, the way that they utilise pop culture references and pop songs, etc. And this can arguably be attributed to the immense success of Shrek and to the way in which that film very consciously fired back against what Disney had been doing several films ago by this point, several years ago by this point, but still a mode of filmmaking that was in many ways seen as emblematic of what a hand-drawn feature film was, at least Mm. in the West, at least in in North America. So where does Shrek 2 come in? Well, (laughs) (laughs) that is the question. This is the next DreamWorks computer animated feature film. In between, that we've had two hand-drawn films from DreamWorks, Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron and Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas, both of which have arguably a more Disney-esque approach and certainly a more kind of traditional approach in terms of what the hand-drawn animated film was seen to be. They, in a way that uh, their previous hand-drawn film, The Road to El Dorado, kind of did it was almost Emperor's New Groovian in its kind of yeah. anarchicness. Those two films, Spirit and Sinbad, pushed away from that a little bit, and they would be DreamWorks' last hand-drawn films. So Shrek 2 was their kind of... It was the first computer-animated film that they put out after they stopped putting out hand-drawn films. It was also not only the most successful computer-animated film, but the most successful animated film of all time worldwide. So if anything, it did serve to reinforce the tropes, the conventions that were codified in that first Shrek movie, not least because, apart from a couple of Pixar movies and Ice Age, there hadn't really been any other computer-animated films in America released in the interim. So it was kind of the setup for all of these other studios like Warner Brothers and Sony and and the rest of Blue Sky's work post-Ice Age and Disney when they pivoted to CGI with Chicken Little to start really bringing together the conventions that would come to define the computer animated feature. So I think it's then relevant, because I'm wondering why Alex used the phrase jump the shark, and <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering if the things that Alex dislikes about Shrek 2, i.e., I'm guessing here, it's excesses, based on that comment, it's many excesses, which are also the things that I like about it, Um it's taken everything that Shrek did and turned it up to 11, to use that cliche. It's got more stars, given more kind of presentational performances that rely more on our foreknowledge of their star persona and of, of previous films they've starred in, previous characters they've played. It's got more pop songs. It's using its pop songs in a more intrusive way. It's got more very obvious, intrusive anachronisms as well and to the extent that the whole world the whole diegesis of the film is this just complete hodgepodge between medieval fairy tale fantasy and the hallmarks of the contemporary and contemporary american culture and california culture in particular before i unleash unleash uh, dr Sargent on this conversation i just wanted to because it, i'd not really thought about shrek 2 in this way that you're absolutely right you've got the the very famous sort of industrial tussle back in 1998 between ants and a bug's life that sort of you know did the rounds at the at the time and, and was um yeah the the moment where I, I remember reading something was like CG is Hollywood's boom sector. It's awfully competitive out there. It was this was the moment where where companies were kind of coming to head in a way that was evoking a sort of perhaps studio era model of of, of big studios and their and their rival um, properties. Then yeah, that sort of dipped towards well the the first Shrek film and and Monsters Inc that has that same sort of rivalry. But it seems like then Shrek two was kind of had to do something different because if it's 2004 as you said it's released the same year as Shark Tale a lot's riding presumably on Shrek 2 because you know it's it's their first their uh, first sequel Um, Pixar had only made up to this point one sequel in Toy Story 2 so there's a lot it seems like there was a lot lot going on and Shrek 2 was really really important as you say to set that that tone and then a few months later they released Shark Tale which presumably then takes the computer animated film a little bit well, back a few steps, potentially. Back a few steps is interesting because it, it they are kind of like parallel, these films, in terms of their strategies. Like, in terms of yeah. what they are doing, they are equal. There's not many things that Shrek does that Shark Tale doesn't do yeah, in right. its own way. That They're both, like, again, utilise star voices and pop songs in a very ostentatious way. They are both 
I, I hesitate to use the word parody with regards to Shark Tale, but because it's not Shark Tale, unlike the Shrek films, doesn't really have anything to say. So Shark Tale has been described by <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg, the producer, as a parody of gangster films. It's not really. It doesn't have a stance on gangster films. It's just a movie about fish, which is peppered with references to gangster films. The Shrek films have a stance on fairy tales, and whether or not you think that they argue their case successfully, they have a case to argue. So, yeah, I, I don't know that Shark Tale is like a step back from Shrek Two. It's just it it, it it's making the same it's making the same step forward from Shrek One that Shrek Two is. It's the right. same, but more. It's just Shark Tale does it worse and less cohe- <laughs> less coherently. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Um, right, come on then, Alex. This is this is because I'm I'm really interested. As I said, we've never really had a kind of conversation. I sit in front of these, you know, Lord of the Rings whatnots all the time, and here we go. This is you and a computer animated film um, together. Not at last, but for one of the first times. What? Uh, what is not enough fantasy? What's going on with this jumping the shark? Surely jumping the shark is Shark Tale, no? <laughs> Very good. No, well, so first off, Shrek one, terrific. Um, and from my perspective, as as a fantasy sort of theorist, what's great about Shrek is it is, as Sam was saying about Shark Tale, lacking that coherent sort of parody of yeah. gangster movies. Shrek is an incredibly successful bat uh, biting satire on um, Disney fairy tales. Yeah, and it and it and it makes its point really effectively and packs a punch and. And in that world, in my sort of world, that 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 really feels satisfying as a fantasy fan, as a fan of those sort of Disney films, but with it with a with a sort of you know using that kind of punk pop culture spirit as almost a sort of form of rhetoric to take apart these fairy tale tropes. I think when but I think Shrek Two is equally coherent. I just see Shrek Two as more of a satire of as as again as Sam has already said, L.A. culture. Um, and and really, by the time we get to Shrek Two, what I th- what I think was a satire of fantasy, and therefore a story ultimately interested in fantasy, has become more of a satire of LA culture that that I would completely concede has equally levels of coherence and and relevance and and all that kind of stuff. Just as I think it probably speaks more to the two animation fans in the room than it does to someone like me, because I think the legacy of that kind of change from a, a story that is ultimately about fairy tales to a story that's ultimately about LA is that it gives license to a bunch of these movies that come since that kind of just sort of have a scattershot attack at all aspects of pulp culture. And by the time we get to sort of see Shrek 3, 4, what is it, Happily Never After or whatever those the endless sort of, you know, revisionist fairy tales we got, I just felt like the substance had come out of the battle, and and I, and I can see Trek Two is a is a is an interesting movie. I just I can see that's where it changes. To me, Shrek One is a movie about fantasy, and Shrek Two is a movie about um, pop culture. I not sure that I agree. I think that I think if anything, if I was going to criticise Shrek Two um, with regards to what it satirises and what it parodies, I would maybe argue that it's it's not making. It's not saying anything new compared mm-hmm. to the first one with regards to its parody of, of fairy tales and of Disney. I think that the first movie has something to say about... Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> um, maybe we need to distinguish between satirising fantasy and fairy tales and satirising Disney. Uh, sure. Arguably, Shrek 1 is doing both, but I think satirising Disney is is more at the forefront and mm-hmm. is the more significant of these uh, kind of impulses for that movie. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Shrek 2 is saying something very similar. I think they're both... To me, if I'm reading each of these movies as satires of Disney, they are both criticising the apparent initiative at the Disney studio to homogenise these fairy tales, particularly in like the 1990s work, and force them into um, like a perfect mould or force happy endings upon these stories. I mean, famously, so many of the Disney movies from the 90s in particular swap out the endings of their fantasy stories for mm-hmm. something more palatable that fits this mould. Um, but I think Shrek 2 is saying the same thing as Shrek 1 in that sense, so you could argue that it's satire hasn't progressed since the first movie, but I still think it's there. I still think it's satirising fairy tales and it's satirising Disney and perhaps part of the reason why L.A. gets brought into this is because it wants to call out certain affinities between 
the issues that it has with LA culture and the issues that it has with Disney. Um, and, and I think those thing, two things are more intertwined and less mutually exclusive than you might suggest. I don't think we need to make this an hour uh, an argument. I'll just I'll, I'll reserve my no, grumpiness no. for a few for a few <laughs> for a few pot shots here and there. I'll 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 take that um, reservation. But I think maybe if we start with why don't we? Does anyone want to try and summarize the plot of Shrek Two and just get everyone <laughs> up to speed for anyone who hasn't perhaps seen it for a while? I can do it, but I'm happy to pass it over to one of our uh, animation experts. Sam, why don't you do the honors? What Shrek? 2 oh, about? fantastic! <laughs> Shrek Two is uh, meet the parents in <laughs> Shrek One. <laughs> Shrek yep. met Fiona. Okay, that's it. That's go all on. we need. Go on. Go on. Go on. Um, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah go on. Yeah. <laughs> so Shrek 2 is about Shrek and Fiona, who was once a beautiful princess, but since meeting her true love, that is Shrek, she's being transformed into an ogre, taking much the same appearance as him. They have to go to Far, Far Away, which is the kingdom ruled over by her parents, and then they kind of clash with the parents who aren't totally happy with the fact that Fiona is now an ogre instead of a princess. Mm -hmm. And they thought when they were locking her in a tower to await her true love, that she was going to meet Prince Charming, who was going to kiss her and make sure she would never have to turn into an ogre again. Mm. Prince Charming and his mother, the fairy godmother, then become the antagonists of this film because the fairy godmother is obsessed with marrying her son off to Fiona and needs to get Shrek out of the way in order to do so. That's it. I think that sounds that sounds summary. perfect. And then, and then we get, of course, Antonio Banderas turns up at one of point. Of course, we get a giant gingerbread man, uh, a, a, a Pinocchio wearing ladies' underwear, uh, and then it all ends in a sing song oh in the way that only Shrek films uh, can and can and do. So yeah, superbly summarised. So let's let's kind of go through some of these beat by beat. I mean, one of the things that I think is is an issue, perhaps not with this movie, but certainly it's on the precipice, is that I noted right from the beginning, we love doing this on the podcast, let's start with the logos, um, is that, am I correct in thinking this is the first DreamWorks movie in which the Shrek theme is used as the Sh- DreamWorks logo theme, or have Ooh. I got that wrong? Um, I think I think you're I think you're right. This is this is post. Um, had they bought PDI by this point, Sam? DreamWorks. They'd sort of they sort of became DreamWorks Animation, whereas up to this point they were they were sort of a different beast, which I guess fits yeah. into to 2004 being quite a pivotal year for for the studio. Yes, uh-huh. the the kind of that that merger was definitely underway. Right, um, right, right. But yeah, I don't know so about. I don't know as, about as, the music. As the one that puts that, that has his head in the fairy books. What's her? What's Pete? What 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 merges this? So PGI was a kind of computer effect studio, and okay. um, based in in California, that initially was being used by the DreamWorks studio, headed by Katzenberg, Steven Spielberg, and David Geffen, to produce their computer animated movies, and then eventually merged with them to become a single entity and then dreamworks animation would later break away from the dreamworks studio to become its own entity Mm. okay cool so the reason i flagged that one up is just because i think it's a nice little metaphor for one of the issues that shrek 2 and subsequent sequels have to deal with in that shrek arrives as this both the character and the film as this kind of plucky outsider uh taking on disney and the industrial status of dreamworks is not quite what it is today it, it, it's the underdog and both in, on an industrial level and a kind of character stat story level by the time we get to shrek 2 shrek 2 is the as you say the highest grossing animation film of all time shrek is the song that announces dreamworks as a studio so it's having to negotiate a tension that becomes harder and harder for it to negotiate as you go on which is how can you take pot shots at disney as a Shrek franchise, when you are in self-franchising Shrek into a franchise, and and I don't necessarily accuse this film of that. I just thought it was an interesting tension that started the movie off. Yeah, I mean the legitimacy of this anti-Disney position has always been questionable because Jeffrey Katzenberg, who founded DreamWorks and produced these movies, was the mm-hmm. the producer at Disney for the vast majority of the period which this movie is satirizing, right? For the for the mm. majority of the Disney Renaissance, the period during which The Little Mermaid, Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast were produced. So there's always been this kind of 
you, you can question the legitimacy of this satire on that basis. This has never really been the underdog. Like, yes, DreamWorks are a new studio, but they're a studio founded by three of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the industry with, who had an enormous wealth of kind of contacts and resources to build this empire on. So, yeah, it's, I think... If anyone was to really try and put DreamWorks and Shrek forward as like a David and Goliath mm. analog with Disney, that wouldn't really work. They are exactly what they are taking pot shots against. If if there is a deeper reason behind them taking pot shots towards Disney, it's a commercial one. It's it's trying to position themselves as this punky alternative when really they're anything mm. but punky. They're anything but anarchic. But I think for a period at least, the Shrek and Shrek 2 very successfully did position them as that in the public imagination. Mm. I, I think you're absolutely right, Sam, because thinking about it, if if Shrek 2 is 2004 and Toy Story is 95, the computer animated film is less than 10 years old by this point. So Shrek and you know Shrek 2 would have been produced a couple of years before its release. So by 2004, what struck me about, about Shrek 2 was and goes back to your point about DreamWorks themselves perhaps setting a, a, a tonal quality, however abstract we take the idea of tone. Um, this film felt very much like it could have been made a couple of years ago. It didn't feel... There are ways that it is very 2004, and there is something in the relationship it has with Meet the Parents. I was thinking more of the sort of teen... The teen comedy, teen horror, teen romantic... You know, all the all the 10 things out about you, she's all that... Um, Final Destination, all these American Pie, even Mean Girls is 2000, 2001, um, Van Wilder, Varsity Blue. There's something in that. There, there's something in what, what Shrek 2 is. Shrek 2 is reflecting more of its 2004-ness than Shrek was perhaps reflecting its 2001-ness. Mm. Um, and I don't quite know what that 2004-ness is, but there, that's perhaps the split between what the first and second Shrek film, Shrek film is doing. But there's something about Shrek 2 that sets in sets in play a, a narrative or tonal template that means it, it feels very much like it could have been a couple of couple of years ago which is strange for a film that is 17 years old and and a computer animated film that was less than 10 years old it seems very um maybe that speaks to the durability of computer animated films or the durability of of that particular type of computer animated film um but yeah shrek 2 seems like it could could have come out within the last couple of years quite comfortably, perhaps were it not for some kind of pop culture citations, but yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of those pop culture citations though, aren't there, which do kind of pin it back a little bit and a lot of the mm. the music and, you know, these yeah, Shrek yeah. films, very fixated on the band Eels, and I've got no <laughs> idea no idea how big Eels were or whether they were ever big or whether they were just big, you know, whether they were just on these movies because they were signed to DreamWorks Records, which sure. is probably the most likely answer to that question. But um, yeah, the Shrek Two, yeah, maybe maybe it feels like it could have come out a few years ago. I mean, one thing about computer animation which challenges its timelessness is the fact that computer graphics age a lot quicker than hand-drawn animation right to me is that mm-hmm. i don't know if we can build a consensus on that but it's it's easier <laughs> to look at a computer animated movie and say oh that didn't come out recently i, I don't think shrek is aged terribly i think there's definitely nope. computer animation in shark tale for example which looks a lot older and a lot more of its time but um yeah i wonder and yeah is it timeless or because uh, it does seem to be trying to locate itself within that pop culture moment and a lot of criticisms of these kinds of animated movies the shrek films and those that followed in their wake was that they aren't timeless and they're often held up against the disney movies which really locate themselves within this discourse of timelessness yeah. right like it, mm. the disney movies are supposed to be timeless because they get re-released constantly and for the most part with a couple of very notable exceptions they don't reference pop culture as greedily as the Shrek films do. You know, there's a couple of little references here and there, but apart from something like Aladdin, they're not as pop culture heavy. And mm. I think it's possibly for that reason to allow them to be timeless. And Shrek, in perhaps part of its backhand to Disney, and Shrek 2, loudly does not care about being timeless. It's of its moment, and that's fine. And because it's of its moment, it's going to mm. make millions and millions of dollars. Unheard of amounts for an animated film. Uh, mm. And maybe, well, maybe 
they weren't as bothered about whether people would be watching them in 20 years' time in the same way that Disney's business model has always been based on kind of re-releases every decade or so and otherwise milking their legacy properties. But people still are watching Shrek 2 for whatever reason. Um, yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't imagine DreamWorks having a vault where, where they finally release after, you know, the, the re-release of Shark Tale. Yeah. We're releasing it from the vault. You're absolutely right. Um, I, I guess... What I mean is, is that more computer animated, maybe maybe part of that timeless, timeless quality for me, as much as the film is 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 of the kind of 2004. And I'm now looking at the the soundtrack to Ten Things I Hate About You, which was released by Geffen Records. Uh, there you there go. go, connection, uh, connection. Um, but I feel like more computer animated films look and feel like toy, uh, that look and feel like Shrek 2 than they do the first Shrek, because mm-hmm. because of that because. Shrek 2's preoccup- uh, sorry because Shrek's preoccupation is is so much with Disney and dismantling Disney whereas the second Shrek 2 and maybe this is what Alex is referring to this it's generic frames of reference are slightly different it's 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 more forward facing rather than looking at what Disney had done um and yeah, I, I just feel like more computer animated films are drawing from that kind of the Shrek 2 template than they maybe are the Shrek the Shrek template because that seemed quite mar- you know, or marketed or, or um, framed by its its anti Disneyness. Whereas yeah. I don't know whether Shrek Two had that same um, weight on its shoulders. Essentially, well, I I I think it's a I, a consequence of the sort of that the the desire to sort of extend out this world that we are introduced to in the first and the second one, and just the spaces the narrative requires us to inhabit. To me, the, the first one takes yeah. seriously. <laughs> The fairy tale world. The only kind of space it doesn't take seriously is is what is it? Lord Far Farquad's sort of Duloc. Duloc, thank you. Yeah, which is yeah, you know, yeah. Disneyland, isn't it? And that it mocks, you know, in, in an incredibly effective sequence. But the rest of it, you know, the 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 the, the travel narrative, the the drag, even the you know the, the the sort of the tallest tower where Fiona is, all that stuff is treated with a degree of of. This is the real world outside of Disney, almost. You know, it's kind of structured that way. Um, perhaps maybe not Robin Hood Woods section, but 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 most of it. Whilst I feel like most of the spaces, most of the magical places we're asked to inhabit in Shrek 2 are meant to be mocked as spaces. They're meant to be kind of vacuous and celebrity obsessed. And, you know, the happy ending is, seems to be a sort of uh, stand-in for sort of the, the sort of PR, Twitter, uh Instagram uh, influencer lifestyle that you know uh, Shrek is in, you know Shrek basically the magic potion gives Shrek and Fiona one have an effective uh, Snapchat filter uh, to sort of hide their real selves behind and and I think that's perhaps where I'm I'm less interested in that I, I don't see the fairy tale substance being taken quite as seriously in the first one but but I see why it's doing that yeah I mean it's interesting that you mentioned Duloc because that is like the the only real anachronisms that appear, and I say anachronisms, that might be slightly inaccurate because we're not dealing with a specific point in time, obviously, but a general kind of medieval milieu. But the only real anachronisms in that film and also the only real moments that seem very specifically directed towards Disney instead of at the fairy tale tradition as a whole are those theme park trappings that you find in Duloc. And there's only really three jokes. There's the kind of um, the bollards, the rope bollards that Shrek has to go through, mm. the kind of queue that he pushes through. There's the guy in the Farquaad costume with the big head on, like a Disneyland <laughs> character. And there's the welcome to Duloc, it's a perfect place, animatronics, which are an obvious dig, it's a small world. And that's really it in terms of like literal anachronisms. And what Shrek 2 does is it takes those three jokes and makes them the entire premise of its diegesis, mm. the entire premise of its fantasy world. Mm. And that gives us settings like Far, Far Away, which is, you know, we start off in Shrek Swamp in this familiar location, then we travel too Far, Far Away. That's the first real extension of the first film's world. And it is Beverly Hills, and it's got a Hollywood sign, and it's got all sorts of, like, um, shops, like Versace instead of Versace, yep. and, like, um, I can't remember, oh, Farbucks instead of <laughs> Starbucks. Starbucks yeah. Yeah, there's just there's there's all sorts. I can't be I can't remember all of them, but there's a lot. Um, and it really is saying, look, this is something in your world. This isn't something fantastical. It's drawing those connections, those analogues. Um, in fact, it's interesting that Chris, you mentioned ten things I hate about you because 
I would argue that this is doing something very similar to what those like teen movie adaptations yeah. of Shakespeare and mm. Austen do. And uh, Gerard Jeanette yeah, uses the term proximization to refer to movies like 10 Things I Hate About You and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, adaptations which transplant the story um, from a classical text into the modern day and draw analogues, draw connections between modern yeah. day cultures and historical cultures, for example. And I would argue that something like Shrek is doing, ex- sorry, that something like Shrek 2 is doing exactly the same thing. It's proximization of a different sort. It's drawing analogues between our world and the fantastical world and asking the audience to relate to examples of this fantasy location based on their own experiences of reality. So it's saying it's helping the audience to understand what Far, Far Away represents in the Shrek world by comparing it to something that is, in theory, very recognisable to us. I'd not thought about the the sort of Instagram filter or the Snapchat filter that Alex mentioned, but it seems it seems like that in the in the first Shrek, there is this mythical ogre. By the second Shrek, people know about him um, people are then increasingly enamoured by him when he turns human. Um, mm-hmm. He is a celebrity. There's a red carpet. We have Joan Rivers, or if if you're in the UK, Kate Thornton. Um, you have the uh, Larry King. So you have these sorts of. I don't know. The, the film seems to be interested in celebrity because even at the end of, of Shrek Two on the DVD, where you have the references to Pop Idol, um, mm-hmm. and there's suddenly these films, their their pop culture references are very geared towards image. And, and consumerism and so is that where the star voices element to this comes in because i know you have a, a chapter in your book about about star voices and it seems it seems i remember that the, the and, and maybe this is a false narrative but dreamworks were are often known for celebrating or, or marketing their star voices in a way that was slightly um kind of i don't know incongruous with other kinds of models maybe it's to do with casting practices disney falling back on a particular kind of broadway star and i know alex and, and i have kind of chatted about the the role the role the fluctuating role of star voices and and but it seems like the DreamWork films have always been a magnet for a discussion about the star voice and that seems to feed into their quite they're quite brazen about their their through the Shrek films quite brazen about their treatment of celebrity so it makes perfect sense that they would cast Mike Myers Cameron Diaz Eddie Murphy and so forth yeah and I think what's different there even from kind of the, the other examples that you gave, the earlier examples that you gave, and, and different from, for example, Tom Hanks and Tim Allen, both massive yeah. stars at the time. Yeah. You know, no offence to Tim Allen, maybe falling <laughs> down a little bit. Um, he, he's not going to listen to this, I think. No. Right. <laughs> Stay so, tuned to our episode on home improvement. Um, <laughs> oh, please, can I come back for that one? <laughs> yes. um, so the difference between what DreamWorks are doing and what you know Pixar obviously in at least the case of Toy Story using equally big stars maybe less so in some of their other films is that DreamWorks want us to see the star behind the character and in, in Shark Tale at least I don't want to make this too much of a Shark Tale episode in Shark Tale at least the image of the character of the actor is incorporated so closely into the image of the character and you can't look at the fish without also seeing Will Smith. You can't look yeah, at yeah. Don Lino without also seeing Robert De Niro. And the Shrek films aren't as brazen as that. And especially, so Mike Myers, as he does in most of his films, is playing a character. Mike Myers yeah. doesn't have a persona in the same way that Eddie Murphy does, for example. Mike Myers' persona is his ability to, like, chameleon like almost inhabit these various comic characters. So. But, but, I mean, Eddie Murphy... I, mean, I know you're writing a paper about Eddie Murphy's performance for, for my conference, Christopher. But um, <laughs> so Eddie Murphy is bringing an aspect of his persona to his character in this. But I think the main star performance in the early Shrek films, at least, is that of Antonio Banderas, who is bringing yeah. us Zorro. I think it's very interesting that today Antonio Banderas is almost certainly most well-known for playing Puss in Boots, right? Like, his I did the maths on this, and his appearances as Puss in Boots combined outgross every other movie that he's ever been in combined <laughs> as live Antonio Banderas. Right? He is Puss in Boots to Excellent. us today. Yeah. But at the time, to a certain segment of the audience, he was Zorro from the Zorro films. Mm-hmm. And the fact that those characters of Banderas, of Zorro, and of Puss in Boots become so inextricable in these films is always been fascinating to me because there's nothing about the Puss in Boots character 
as he appears in fairy tales that really suggests Zorro. <laughs> and yet, so it, what they've done is they've made this character Zorro, and in the public imagination, most people now know Puss in Boots as this Zorro-esque figure, or would even see Zorro as a Puss in Boots-esque figure, depending on what order they encountered these things in, when that's not part of the character, that's part of Antonio Banderas. And this kind of tripartite figure that exists within the Puss in Boots of the Shrek movies is, is fascinating to me as an example of mm. star performance in an animated film. And I think that's that's a tension that I find in that in the, it feels like the the desire to have fun at the expense of stardom uh, to to engage in those kind of jokes is taking precedent in this film over the desire to put Puss in Boots in the movie in a, in a way that gets you know grumpy grim fans like me uh, uh, slightly slightly uh, on their back. Um, because I think that is absolutely true. That's what it's ultimately interested in in, in these moments. And, and what it made me think of is, you know, it's it's an interesting thorny knot fantasy and, and satire because it kind of has always gone hand in hand. You can go right back to sort of the origins of the genre with people like Jonathan Swift creating fantasy lands to, to tell very satirical contemporary stories. But there's this kind of... Th- thorny line between and fantasy theorists get very upset about this is sort of when you take the fantasy seriously or not and when you're when you're almost making fun of fantasy as a, as an impulse as part of that kind of subversion and it feels like as you say everything's cranked up to 11 here and it's like there are there are no um there is no quite there's no th- uh, clear line as to where the satire stops and and the only problem with that is that it, very quickly it can be the snake that eats its own tail isn't it and that you get these sort of you know it's making fun of celebrity but then celebrities are queuing up to be in these movies and do cameos in these movies yeah. because they are legitimize celebrity at the same time as 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 doing it and antonio banderas becomes a sort of you know that we have a puss in boost spin-off because of this and all this kind of stuff um i i have a uh, kind of a question or a um a a note that i made in relation to uh fiona's parents uh wonderfully played by john cleese and and julie andrews but the question of the father's um the, the the father's reluctance for his daughter to mix um and what that means for the sort of mixed children that the the the, the ogre and, and Fiona, or as they are both ogres, but essentially human and ogre, the kinds of children. And he says something, and then he later on he says it's in his nature to be a bit bit of a brute. And I'm sort of, and this comes out of our episode on Happy Feet, the sort of relationship between digital bodies and 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 race, which is why I'm interested in in Eddie Murphy mm. and the sort of yeah that sort of the the, the post racial refrain in the lead up to 2008 nine, but then how a lot of animated films. And, and a lot of the DreamWorks animated films um, sort of use black actors or black stars as part. And, you know, Will Smith in the lead up to Obama is the high, one of the highest grossing actors um, in Hollywood. Um, and I know Hannah Hamed's written a lot on Eddie Murphy and Will Smith and the sort of their, their relationship to family and stardom between kind of 2003, 2004, right up to 2008. But I just wondered whether or not... And there's also another line later on about... I think it's... it's um, charming when he says what when i went up to finally find fiona all that uh, was confronting me was some gender confused wolf and so i'm just sort of interested in in what we is there anything to make around the kind of racial politics of of this film given given the meet the parents narrative that we described in in the meet the parents films that's along the line of sort of jewishness whereas in this film there's something around otherness that plays out in different ways and i'm just trying to get my head around yeah around that sort of that sort of reluctance within the film that harold has towards his daughter mixing with with somebody who doesn't look like him and then of course look, look like her sorry uh, and then what happens later on of course when he then transforms into of course you know the donkey doesn't transform into a black man the donkey transforms into a stallion whereas the ogre transforms into a very attractive white man and so i'm just trying to get my head around some of the 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 bo- kind of body politics of of the film and, and wanted to yeah see what see what the DreamWorks expert and the fantasy expert thought. Well, I mean the the DreamWorks relationship with otherness and with difference has always been a bit murky. I think. I mean, yeah, it's right, the right. obvious thing to say about DreamWorks in comparison to Disney is that, and, and this is something that obviously Shrek the first one makes such a big point of is that yeah. Disney movies end with the different character the other character typically returning to the standard kind of 
generic figure that you know that's their goal like sort of i mean beauty and the beast or pinocchio for example the, the the beast obviously ends up as this very generic looking white man pinocchio obviously ends up as this very generic looking white boy so any readings yeah. you know racialized readings etc that you might want to um make of these films has to then contend with the fact that oh well but they end up as the kind of hegemony they end up as this generic yeah, yeah. white figure mm-hmm. and Disney know that this is a problem because no one wants to buy merchandise of real boy Pinocchio. No one wants to buy merchandise of the very odd-looking chap who we're left with at the end of (laughs) Beauty and the Beast. The the characters in the franchise, to the extent that the sequel to Beauty and the Beast was actually a midquel so that they could use the actual beast, is always always (laughs) the other. Their goal is to become like a real boy or a real man, but within the wider Disney empire, they are trapped within these othered bodies yeah yeah one thing that dreamworks does again very pointedly in the first shrek is they end with Mm. the other they end with difference and it makes a big point of that with regards to fiona in both well in both the first two shrek movies and obviously with regards to the king in this movie as well he ends up as the frog and therefore that is right and that is good but that's not to say that these movies are very straightforwardly progressive in any way because they do so you mentioned like the the gender confused wolf that is that that there the movie's stance on the the wolf character in particular and also i think pinocchio wearing a thong from like a gender perspective is a bit regressive and i mean this comes to a head in have either of you seen shrek the musical no, no, I, no, I haven't. But go on. But Shrek the musical, which is a fairly straightforward adaptation, plot-wise, of the first Shrek movie, um, but one which really wants to make this uh, any allegories that you might read into the film with regards to the fairy tale creatures and particular disenfranchised real-life groups. Um, it wants to make that text, so it's quite openly calling the fairy tale characters as i would say queer um first and foremost and there's this song called let your freak flag fly which is like the big kind of anthemic um what's that song you like the greatest showman right what's that what's that greatest showman song that everyone likes yeah okay it's it's the it's one of those right and within that song um, there is a slur against within the lyrics of the song the T slur right. against transgender people is used with regards to the wolf and I think that's an excellent microcosm of DreamWorks films and the Shrek films in particular attitude towards otherness and difference it's kind of a have you cake and eat it thing where we want to celebrate difference but we will not step back from easy jokes at the expense of people within particular groups we will not think about how we are representing queer characters or for example the um, Latin community within the character of Puss in Boots in this movie, who you know, there's jokes made at the expense of him being a criminal and a, and a drug dealer, for example, in this movie, which have been read in a very anti-Latin light by other scholars. So, mm. yeah, they, DreamWorks, in, in, much in the same way as they want to position themselves as progressive from like an artistic standpoint with regards to Disney, they also seem to want to position themselves as progressive from a a cultural ideological standpoint with regards to Disney, but they can't quite pull themselves away from what is at their core, which is, you know, a, a, a more conservative um, take on both filmmaking yeah. and on marginalised groups. Yeah, I just I suppose just on that, I think it's it's maybe the the this is where we're back to Banderas again. I think the introduction of his character in the second Shrek film sharpens. The, the sort of racial markers that we're intent that we're supposed to to, to allocate to certain characters. Yeah. So Shrek and uh, Fiona are the white characters. Um, the donkey is the black character, and there's lots of writing on the sort of problematic representation of him as as fool, as psychic, as clown, um, as hyperactive, kind of hyperactive, uh, a masculinity that is too much, that is more than. Um, and then of course Antonio Banderas is, as you say, this this kind of Latino man and and. So, so I think his casting is particularly important because it does sharpen the the collision of different character types, different actors, different stars um, as sort of the lead four in the film. But it also sharpens, I think, the the whiteness of Shrek and, and Fiona because you have values that are attributed to them around emotion, you know, neuroses, um, 
I don't know, family in a way that isn't allocated to the other characters. And I think Banderas' casting is is really important because it yeah, sharpens our awareness of the whiteness of Shrek and Fiona. And of course, her parents, very white performers in, in John Cleese and, and Julie Andrews. So I think it's super interesting. I think that the, and even Charming and, and Godmother, who we haven't even kind of gone to, but um, the, the whiteness is particularly kind of striking. I just, I find it very interesting. We yeah. talked about this previously in, in our Space Jam episode with, with Paul and, and, and the way that anthropomorphism relates to, to um, kind of racialized racialized bodies. I don't know if I have anything more to yeah. say to that, but I, it, it's, it's sharpened, I think, by Banderas's presence. Uh, should should I feel I can't believe I'm saying this having started the podcast as the as the grump. We've done about twenty minutes on on problematic racial politics. Let's do a few minutes on the things that we think it gets right in terms of its what it's attacking yeah. and what it's what it's doing well. And and I'd like to just raise the fairy godmother character because I'd forgotten about oh. that villain. And obviously, Jen, you know Jennifer Saunders is magnificent in everything, so of course she's magnificent sure. in this. But I, I've forgotten that there's that that sort of whole thing about. Um, wishing and wishing as sort of a commercial exchange and I, and I like that aspect of the movie that the film is kind of taking one of the things it's taking part is this culture of wish fulfillment that again we could go back to disney and the, you know snow white and i'm wishing and every and 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 sort of certain characters in disney films express express agency purely through wishing things to happen um and the film takes a very pointed aim at the idea that 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 wishing for things gets you anything because the film seems to suggest that if you wish for things uh, and hope that things like fairy godmas will save you um, and there's a whole discourse within fantasy about supernatural beings like fairy godmas being essentially kind of stoking um, narcissistic impulses in the reader and that what they do is they sort of you know create a world in their own image rather than a world that actually exists it does a very good job of sort of setting that character up either as someone that offers false promises or that offers promises in exchange for money in the kind of you know the, the factory of potions things like that so i i wanted to do a shout out i thought that was that was a very well observed um character i don't know if you have any thoughts on that sam yeah, the, end, the 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 notion of the happy ending is really core to this film and to its satire of Disney to the point where in the final battle the fairy godmother is is literally weaponizing the happy ending. There's a bit where Pinocchio leaps through the sky and <laughs> she hits him with her wand and he turns into a real boy, goes, "I'm a real boy." and then collapses to the ground. And elsewhere in that fight and elsewhere in the series, we see Pinocchio utilise his puppet properties to his advantage. So, for example, there's the Mission Impossible sequence where he's dangling from his strings to rescue Shrek and Donkey from prison. And, and, and that's a very... When she turns him into a real boy, it's an encapsulation of that idea, almost the idea that I was talking to before, that the real Pinocchio is the puppet. The, the Pinocchio that everyone yeah. knows is the puppet. The Pinocchio mm. with unique abilities that help him out, that help his friends out, is the puppet. And in that very brief moment, she weaponizes the happy ending to say, all right, I'll give you what you've always wanted. I'll make you a real boy, but it's going to take you out of this fight. It's going to make you useless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, this, this the fact that she inhabits this factory, I mean, it's the, the satire in these films, right? It's not very sophisticated, but there's some there's there's bits where you have to be like, oh, that is qu it's easy, but it's still good. Yeah. It's still being well yeah. done. So I love the bit where you see where they're approaching the fairy godmother's cottage, and it, it looks like the Snow White cottage, and then it zooms out, and it's this massive factory, and that is like it's a very neat metaphor for the Walt Disney Corporation's mm. industrialization of the fairy tale. And that's what the fairy godmother represent, represents in this movie. And she, she plays a similar role to Farquaad in the first Shrek, which is that they both represent the Walt Disney Corporation and their desire to homogenize these chaotic fairy tales, these you know orally transmitted tales with various different dark strands to them that everyone always delights in pointing out how much darker the original versions of these Disney movies were. And Farquaad is a character who wants to rid his perfect kingdom of the chaotic fairy tale creatures. He's after perfection. That's the buzzword in the first mm. Shrek. And the buzzword in this one is happy ending. And a happy ending in the fairy godmother's eyes and in Disney's eyes does not involve augurs, does not involve any of these darker, chaotic elements entering into the story. Which is why I think... It's very interesting that the fairy godmother in particular, out of all the various Disney characters, has been chosen as the avatar for that corporation's ideals yeah. because 
the the fairy godmother sequence, the bibbidi bobbidi boo sequence in Cinderella, which is kind of pastiched in this movie through Jennifer Saunders' first song, is one of Walt Disney's favourite sequences. And he said, as in one of Walt Disney, the man's favourite sure. sequences, and he said that specifically the moment in which Cinderella's rags turn into a dress is his favourite piece of animation that the studio ever put out, not because of how expertly it is executed but because of what it represents the ethos at the heart of the studio that oh we will make your dreams come true and by taking that moment and that character the figure of the fairy godmother and making her into this very kind of prejudiced villain in this movie who has a very strict idea of what a happy ending is they are taking that iconic moment at the heart of the disney ethos and making it into something deeply unpleasant so if Farquaad's a fascist, then uh, the fairy government's sort of a sort of neoliberal, Thatcherite economic uh, who, who's, who sort of espouses the freedom for everyone to go out of the, their happily ever after, as long as it matches a very narrow definition of what uh, uh, a, a life well lived meant. And she just can't get it into her head that anyone would choose the life that Shrek and Fiona have ch- chosen, right? That's the power, what powers her rage. Exactly, right? Hence the Hollywood connection, hence yeah. the Beverly Hills, because that is that's how these things tie together and that's why I would suggest that the fantasy slash fairy tale mm. satire, the Disney satire and this satire of Beverly Hills culture aren't mutually exclusive. It's it's connecting the impulses there between the fetishization of celebrity, the fetishization of consumerism and of all these various different brands that it brings into its medieval fantasy world and the industrialization of the fairy tale at the hands of Disney. It's linking those two things. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think there's lots going on with the... You're absolutely right. The, the, the fact that the business card that's activated kind of by the tier is really important as a sort of symbol for, you know, making money out of people's, you know, emotional yeah. turmoil. But in the case of the audience, you know, that you pay, pay to see something that's, that's going to stir you in a particular kind of way. Also, one of my favourite sequences in the film is... Well, my favourite, and I guess, broadly speaking, a slightly interesting and potentially troubling, is is her relationship to her own body image and the whole kind of burger sequence when they go and get a drive-through burger, which is which is hilarious and very funny, and and they nail that absolutely, I think. But the reason for her doing that is to do with her, to do with her. Um, you think that she's going to attack Harold when actually. This, the thing she's going to do is order a burger and it's going to ruin her diet. And and that also really chimed with with the sort of post-Mean Girls issue of, you know, and, she, and she's all that, that sort of transformation narrative and the policing of, of bodies and stuff. So I just, I thought a lot's going on with the, within the fairy godmother and is a, is a brilliant is a brilliant character for exactly the, the reason that you that you mentioned, Sam. And I've forgotten about that shot that pulls back. So I guess as a means of coming out of Shrek 2, this is, we've only done Shrek 2. At some point, we will go back and do Shrek 1 in, 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 in the not-too-distant future. Who knows when? Um, do we have any thoughts on, on, the, on, the, on the franchise as a whole and where it goes after this that we could sort of tease listeners with um, in, in lieu of, of a future episode? What, what's, it, does, is, if Shrek 2 is the high point... Does it does it stay relatively high, or where 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 does the shark drop if it if it isn't Shrek two? Shrek three, Shrek the third, to give it its proper title, to give it its due respect. Sure, is before, the, before is the, trashing it. Shrek three is the worst Shrek movie. Okay, so it goes it goes two one four three. Okay, and why That's is the that correct ordering? It runs out of things to say. Mm. The the satiric impulse runs out. Even though I think the satire of Shrek 2 is in many ways a replay of Shrek 1, but with some added nuances to it. Shrek 3 and 4, even though I do quite like 4 for other reasons, mm. aren't, they go beyond what you could call parodies. Much like Shark Tale, they exist within this pastiche world but they run out of things to say about the fairy tale they run out of things to say about disney and shrek 3 and 4 just become a series of midlife crises of seeing shrek relive his Mm. kind of Mm. anger and disillusionment with fatherhood and with middle age and with the kingdom that he finds himself in and it's just it's just less interesting to me as well as being less funny yeah yeah, I guess we should. Well, we should wrap up, but also um, uh, tell us a bit more about the um, this this kind of Shrek conference because, as I said, you you the the anniversary of the first Shrek film 
which to which this conference relates also has kind of queued a number of um kind of stuff within the the uk and, and u.s trade press around what this film did and as i said at the start you wrote a, a pretty robust defense of the film but um yeah tell us about this shrek conference it seems like this is for, for, for listeners who liked this podcast and want to hear more about the shrek franchise this seems like the perfect conference to, to do so Yes, so the conference is titled Two Decades of Shrek. It is online. It's being hosted by Middlesex University, but it is taking place online. Um, Registration, by the time this podcast goes out, should be open. Uh, You can go to shrek2021.eventbrite.co.uk for that, or you can go to at Shrek Research on Twitter, um, which will also have hopefully launched by the time this goes out, (laughs) for... um, ongoing information and, and coverage of the conference and um, so spaces are limited i don't think we'll hit that limit but they are technically limited so do register as soon as um you decide that you would like to go it's on a saturday so very accessible yeah. um yeah, yeah. and it's a celebration is it a celebration <laughs> of the of of, of, the, of the franchise or well, you don't know don't what it is like- it's a different beast I don't like calling it a celebration because it's easy to say, oh, it's a celebration of the 20th anniversary of Shrek. And it's, well, it's, no, it's not because there are going to be papers that critique these films. There's going to be papers that criticise these films, potentially yours, Chris. No spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's not going to be a straightforward celebration. So maybe temper your expectations if you're, you know, we're not Shrek Fest. We're not the, the annual festival that takes place in America where everyone comes to a big park and paints themselves green and eats onions. I'm not saying I'm not going to be doing that sure. yeah, at, yeah, at this fair. conference, but it's not the sole purpose. Um, fair enough. So yeah, there's going to be a wide variety of papers tackling all aspects of the first film in particular, but also the franchise more broadly. Yeah, yeah. And it'll be great to see you there. Terrific. That sounds really great. And a, a, a wonderful chance to sort of use this opportunity for the anniversary to come up to, to learn more about the, the, the franchise, to, to think about its legacy uh, and to do a much better job than, than we've attempted to ske- um, sketch together the last hour of sort of engaging and teasing with all the nuances that the film throws up. Um, so I think it'll be a really great event and I think it's a really great thing to organise. So thanks, Sam. We will also, of course, um, mention your book, uh, DreamWorks Animation, Intertextuality and Aesthetics in Shrek and Beyond, which is still available um, online in all um, books, all places that sell books, uh, whether independent or otherwise. Uh, and, of course, your podcast, um, Sam, if, in case uh, listeners haven't heard your voice before and they'd like to hear you talk, not necessarily about Shrek, but about Disney this time. So tell us about that. Yes, I've, I've had lots of compliments off the back of um, my Disney podcast about my voice, so... <laughs> If that's something that no, I have people like, oh, it's a great, it's a great soothing voice to fall asleep to, okay. or I find your accent very amusing, and either of those yeah. is is absolutely fine by me. Isn't interpretation um, an interesting thing? You can take things in many ways, can't you? Depending on what mood you're in. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So the the podcast is called Disneyversity. That's Disneyversity with an I, not the word Disney and then versity. Okay, Dis. NIversity. Yes. Um, and it is myself and Empire Magazine's Ben Travis going through each of the Disney animated feature films in chronological order. By the time this goes out, I think the most recent episode will probably be The Aristocats, oh. which means that Robin Hood is soon to come Very and good. they're both fairly juicy in their own <laughs> ways. Um, so, yeah, it's, I would say, slightly lighter on its feet than this podcast in an academic sense. It's not like mega rigorous, it's more of an entryway. But definitely, if you want to um hear people dissecting these films with some quite interesting guests as well um it's a good place to start sounds great and hear that chris we're mega rigorous so that's uh that's uh, <laughs> that's, that's good to know impact that's good to know impact that's good to know because I've, I've been thinking about how mega rigorous we are and actually i've written down a series of references over the past hour we've mentioned the eels van wilding and gerard Jeanette. so i think that's not bad for an hour's work everyone um uh, and yep. some and shrek and donkey on the way uh sam that was really great to talk to you i i will i will be less grumpy about shrek too i think you're right i think um there's a level of there's like like an onion there are layers uh here we go i'm back on board back on board um but <laughs> it was really great to talk to you about it and and thanks for sharing your thoughts on the film um and hopefully we'll get you back on again another time to talk about another dreamworks movie uh, further down the line brilliant 
All right, thanks all for having me. All guys. home improvement. All, all home, home improvement. <laughs> our spin-off sure. podcast now available on all um, on all feeds. Um, how that relates to fantasy animation, you will find out there. Uh, we've 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 made tenuous more tenuous links in the past, certainly. Uh, you yeah. can find us, of course, at fantasy-animation.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fananimresearch. F A N F A N A N I M research, um, and get in touch access our, our blog and podcast archive and um, there's plenty more DreamWorks Shrek uh, related items um, in the treasure trove of our website should you choose to access them. Otherwise that's been us for another episode and we will see you next time. Bye. Where have all the good men gone and where are all the gods Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising one isn't there a white night upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and I turn and I dream